Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. So this is my last episode of the year, which motivated me to take a bit of a different tack with the structure and direction of the show. So today you all are hanging out with me and only me. <laughs> it's like insert evil laugh. Wahahaha. You're stuck with me. Um, but for real, I hope you're okay with that. And I guess you could just turn off the episode if you're not, and I wouldn't know. Or would I? Um, I'm just like envisioning myself getting this little like twinge of sadness every time someone turns my episode off. Maybe that's what my anxiety is. It's just like people stopping listening to my podcast. Anyway, I know that guests are really what this show is all about. And I had some really beautiful people on the show this year. And I'm already so excited for you to meet the folks that will join me in 2022. And if you're wondering why it's just us hanging out today, that's because from where I'm sitting in the Northeastern United States, it's not quite winter, but it sure is starting to feel like it. The days are cold, daylight is fleeting. We are down to about nine hours of daylight right now, and we actually had our first snow today, which was quite peaceful, very light, fluffy flakes, and every year at this particular transitional period, I go into a reflective state. I view it as a time to slow down to match the pace of the season and rest up for what's to come. That's why for this episode, we're going to take a beat, take a breath, and look back at some notable ocean advocacy moments of 2021. But before we get into those, do you all want to hear what we talked about this year? We've covered a lot of ground this year, and I had the honor and privilege of hosting 11 shows, including this one. I took July off to unplug and spend time outside and away from screens and microphones, really just appreciate my surroundings and loved ones and friends and family. Um, But this year we talked about veterans cleaning up marine debris, Native Hawaiian artists, showcasing their work in an urgent and necessary call for people to act on indigenous rights, the environment, and a range of social justice issues. We saw my first ever attempt at writing and guiding a meditation. We talked about noise pollution's impact on the ocean, everything happening in National Ocean Month, which is June for anybody that's wondering, the environmental and nutritional value of kelp, hunger strikes against big oil, umbrellas made out of recycled plastic, regenerative farming and clean eating, 
and a professor's guide to leadership for sustainability. And just like we covered a lot of ground on the show, this year brought a lot in the way of ocean advocacy opportunities and news. There is absolutely no way that I will even come close to covering everything that went on this year. So many of the things that I'm going to highlight are issues that you know we worked on through my role with the Healthy Ocean Coalition, interesting facts, um, things that are coming up, just sort of like a general interest show, um, all within the confines of trying to keep it in a reasonable range for you all to listen to. And because we're already mixing it up today, I figure why not take it even further? And because I really enjoyed writing and sharing that guided meditation with you all a few months back, I am going to share something else that I wrote. And I'm planning on sharing this in between topics as sort of a transition and also to infuse a little bit of creativity into the show, especially because some of the topics aren't the most uplifting things in this here climate space. And I'm also doing this as an exercise in vulnerability and trying to get more comfortable in sharing my art. So many of you may know that I'm a photographer. And if you follow me on Instagram, you can see some of my work. That's the creative side of me that I am most comfortable and confident sharing. So I'm pretty open with it. However, I've been writing for even longer, um, way longer than I've been involved in photography. And it's startling. Startling. It is kind of startling. I think that's how I feel when I'm about to share my writing with you. Um, a little bit startled and scared and vulnerable. But anyway, it started as a a journaling exercise when I was a kid. Um, I started journaling to help process feelings of social anxiety that developed from moving regularly as part of a military family. And I just fell in love with journaling. I think it's really cool now because I actually have this like as written by me um, sort of overview of my life from when I was eight years old. But um, at some point it transitioned into poetry. I love poetry, but I very rarely share it because it feels really personal to me and sharing can be scary. Like I just said, startling. (laughs) Because um, I don't know if you'll like it or how it'll be received. And uh, you know, I did have a series of poems featured in an art show in Boston many years ago. And basically it was like having my heart like projected on the wall um, and made me really uncomfortable. But I, I feel like I grew out of that experience and it was good. It was a great experience and I'm so happy to have been a part of it. But um, this has been a massive year of growth for me. I've had a lot of change take place from taking the organization that I help lead out on its own as its own independent organization to ending a two-year relationship with the person that I lived with 
to moving to Maine. And even though I have great friends and family here because I grew up here, it kind of feels like I'm starting fresh. And when things got really intense for me at the end of the summer, it felt like the ground was shifting under my feet and it was stressful, confusing, and unsettling. But I kept reminding myself that growing pains can be uncomfortable and that's okay. And when things started to feel like they were settling, I had this realization that I wanted to take charge of this next chapter and do it my way. I'm in my 30s now, and I understand that life is unpredictable. So when I say I want to do it my way, it's not in a controlling way, but more in a commitment to putting in work into myself to understand what my goals are and what I want and also what I need to do to be comfortable and confident in my in the pursuit of my goals. And in this case, it's, it's sharing more and, and being open to those vulnerable moments. So every poem that I share, I selected because it has imagery of nature woven throughout. So I hope you like them and I thank you for listening. We'll actually start with a poem. Um, I feel like that seems like a, a good fit, so we'll do that. Um, and, and this one in particular to me is more than a poem, actually. It's a tribute to a coworker that I had at the American Literal Society um, that passed away unexpectedly. This person, I cannot emphasize enough, was like central to the identity of the organization. Their name is Jeff Dement, and um, Jeff was a naturalist, and honestly, talking to him, it was like he was an encyclopedia of knowledge. He knew everything about the natural world, I swear, and especially fish. So I wrote this on January 30th after learning the news, and I walked outside and saw one of the most breathtaking sunsets that I have ever seen. Um, so this one's called the death of a naturalist. And actually, um, I don't title all of my poems, but this one, this one got a title. The sky tonight is alive is a light donning its finest coral pink gradient garment, pure radiance powdered with rouge flushed and flustered to learn the news that another of her impassioned protectors is gone forever and much too soon. I'll also note that this is the first time that I've read, I've like, I've never read my poems out loud. Um, I am not like a poetry slam person, not saying that like, I don't like them. I just don't really ever envision um, participating in one. So I'm going to do my best to read these the way that I read them in my head um, without fumbling over my words but be gentle with me. So anyway, the first topic that I want to cover is the historic hurricane season that we had. And I'll note that a lot of this part is informed by CNN and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which for short is lovingly referred to as NOAA. So hurricane season recently came to an end and concluded having produced 21 named storms. And those are, those are categorized by having winds of 
39 miles per hour or greater. There were also seven hurricanes, which have winds of 74 miles per hour or greater, and four major hurricanes, which have winds of 111 miles per hour or greater. Those four major hurricanes were Grace, Ida, Larry, and Sam. Ida and Sam both, again, reached Category 4 strength, and Grace and Larry peaked as Category 3. This year was the third most active year on record in terms of named storms. It marks the sixth consecutive above-normal Atlantic hurricane season, and this was the first time on record that two consecutive hurricane seasons exhausted the list of 21 storm names. This season's storm activity started early and quickly ramped up. It was the seventh consecutive year with a named storm forming before the official start to hurricane season, which is on June 1st, and held the earliest fifth named storm on record. Climate factors, which include La Nina, above normal sea surface temperatures earlier in the season, and above average West African monsoon rainfall, were the primary contributors for this above average hurricane season. So just for context, during an average year, there would be 14 named storms, seven hurricanes, three major and three major hurricanes, and this year met or exceeded each of those categories. So in 2020, more hurricanes actually made landfall in the United States, but this year the storms cost over $20 billion more than last year. While only one hurricane made landfall across the United States this year, which was Hurricane Ida, a total of four named storms left behind over $1 billion in damage each. Those were Tropical Storm Elsa, Tropical Storm Fred, Hurricane Ida, and Hurricane Nicholas. Ida alone exceeded the cost and damage of all $7 billion tropical storm cyclones that made landfall across the U.S. last year, including Hurricanes Laura, Delta, and Zeta. To date, Hurricane Ida is the costliest disaster this year, exceeding $60 billion, and also ranks among the top five most costly hurricanes on record for the United States since 1980. So we're talking about Ida a lot, but the strongest storm of the season was actually Hurricane Sam. And fortunately, Sam didn't hit land. But what was really amazing is the video was captured from inside of Sam. Um, (laughs) That sounds really weird. Hurricane Sam's long life, which was over 11 days as a hurricane, allowed for a research drone to be sailed into it and for the first time transmit video from the inside of a major hurricane at ocean level. You all can check this out online if you Google Hurricane Sam drone video. Um, Every time I watch it, it just blows my mind that a drone could even fly into that. And then the next thing that I think is like, holy crap, look at the size of those waves and look at that wind. Um... And like Ida, Hurricane Sam also reached Category 4 strength with maximum sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. Sam remained a a Category 4 hurricane for four and a half days and generated the fifth highest 
accumulated cyclone energy recorded in the satellite era. Another notable storm was Tropical Storm Anna, which formed in a unique area off the Atlantic Ocean. And it's unique because in the last 100 years, no named storm had ever developed east of Bermuda in the month of May until this year. Typically, storms during this month form over the eastern Gulf of Mexico, western Caribbean, and near the southeastern United States coast. Ida will likely be the only name retired on the list this year, despite there being three other major hurricanes, and this is because the amount of damage and fatalities that Ida caused. And an interesting tidbit that I learned while researching this part is that the letter I already has more retired names than any other letter in the alphabet. There were already 12 retired storm names that start with the letter I, and Ida will likely become the 13th. This next poem that I have for you I wrote on March 6th of this year. It doesn't have a name. I don't know, maybe you guys can name them or maybe I'll come up with one as I'm reading it. Um, But again, I don't name them all. I wrote it after returning home from walking my dog one morning um, when I lived in Somerville. Every morning we would get up and walk like one block over um, to this little park called Perry Park. Super cute. Um, And just like a nice routine to get up and walk Jolene. And on this particular morning, we were up early and one, it was one of those oddly quiet city mornings where no one was out yet and it had just snowed. So we were the first people to make tracks in Perry Park. Oh, something that also might be um, good to know before I read this is that sometimes I call my dog a wolf because I got one of those DNA tests for her and it came back saying that she had, quote, high wolfiness, whatever that means. Um, I think it's pretty rad, though. I really just think it means that she's a badass. <laughs> the day is fresh and marked by the wolf sniffing out shadows still dwelling in a song composed by a New World songbird, boasting a conspicuous crest, a lone crimson flitting flame warming the red oak reminding her of her fall foliage in the final moment before it slipped from her leggy limbs, seeking to know what I am here for and why must I leave the first mortal marks on this here Castor Sugar Park. To which I explain, I had to see for myself if the forecast was wrong about the rain. We have witnessed 70% of nature decline in the last 40 years. And I'm actually not going to talk about the biodiversity crisis directly right now. Rather, a major driver in that and a driver in basically all other climate challenges. Yes, oil and gas, I am talking about you. This is a big year for oil and gas news. So sort of what I was saying at the top of the show, I cannot go through all of it right now and keep this show at a reasonable length. So I will share a few thoughts 
and a few things that you can dive deeper into if you so choose. And it seems like every year is a big year for oil and gas. And that's because the fact of the matter is every single thing that we talk about on this show and that we do to combat climate change, care for the planet, and ensure that people have access to healthy, livable environments will be for naught if people in power don't take action to move us through a just transition away from fossil fuels. And I really don't want to be a downer, but sometimes my job requires me to be that way. I honestly find it hard to believe that this is going to happen in the time that it needs to happen because we live in a system where profit is valued over life. And when I say life, I mean all life. This mindset allows a handful of corporations and individuals to amass incredible wealth, wealth that no one should ever be able to accumulate, especially when it's at the expense of others, and not just others, the majority of life on earth, the future of life on earth. It's a toxic cycle steeped in individualistic greed, led by people that are so far removed from their morals and humanity that they would rather try to colonize Mars than take care of their own planet, because God forbid they think about someone other than themselves in their bank account. I mean, a new report just came out from Global Inequity Lab that found the climate pollution produced by Jeff Bezos's nine-minute joyride into space is equivalent to the lifetime carbon emissions of one billion people. That's absurd. So here I am saying things need to change, but how does that happen in a system where if you have enough money, you live by a completely different set of rules than everybody else? These billionaires and corporations like big oil and gas companies can afford to buy members of Congress to make sure any attempt at regulating their industry is blocked, and they strategically stand in the way of of Congress and progress. And I mean, hell, they even admit it. Every year, the world's five largest publicly owned oil and gas companies spend approximately $200 million on lobbying designed to control, delay, or block binding climate-motivated policy. BP has the highest annual expenditure on climate lobbying at $53 million, followed by Shell with $49 million, and ExxonMobil with $41 million. Chevron in total each spend around $29 million every year. And a report from Influence Map states that part of the lobby that's spent goes towards sophisticated efforts to engage politicians and the general public on environmental policies that could impact fossil fuel usage. On top of that money is more money that goes toward lying to the public about their quote-unquote green energy initiatives and spreading climate misinformation. They have moved well beyond climate denial to science denial and targeting climate solutions. Yeah, and the prices at the pump, I'm like... I'm sitting here like, what do I want to talk about next? Let's talk about gas prices. I am willing to bet that you're seeing a lot of finger pointing in the blame game landing on the president. 
That's because as gasoline prices soared over the last few months, Republicans from fossil fuel rich states began with a perfectly curated messaging campaign, further exploiting fear and frustration by condemning condemning President Joe Biden's climate policies. Oil and gas prices are up because drillers idled their wells and laid off thousands of workers in 2020 when demand dropped due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Demand has since rebounded and production has not kept pace, leading to a tight global supply and high prices. The largest oil and gas companies made a combined $174 billion in profits in the first nine months of the year as gas prices climbed. Exxon alone posted a net income of $6.75 billion in the third quarter. That's its highest profit since 2017. And it's also seen its revenue jump by 60% on the same period last year. People are looking for someone to blame. Blame the people who got us into this mess and lied about it and will keep us in this mess for profit. Wealthy oil and gas company executives choose to line their own pockets while people suffer. They do not care about you. But I do. I care about you. Just in case I was getting too depressing. Um, Honestly, though, it is a disgrace and I'm furious and you should be too. All of this is happening in addition to another massive oil spill, this time off the coast of California, with Amplify Energy Corps spewing more than 126,000 gallons of oil out of a damaged pipe. How many times does this need to happen before something changes? It's still not cleaned up, by the way, but look at how fast the news cycle moves on. This situation and all the spills before it could have been avoided, but because we continue to uphold a system where profit reigns supreme and people and planet are neglected, Decision makers continue to stand by while big oil and corporate polluters destroy the planet and exploit the very people whose backs they are standing on to make their billions. This is unacceptable. We literally saw the Gulf of Mexico light on fire this year. The ocean was on fire. Water, something that is not supposed to light on fire, lit on fire fire because of oil and gas corporations. This has gone on for far too long and must come to an end. We're going to stay on oil and gas for a minute, but this time let's turn the spotlight right on over to the Biden administration. And um, this is an administration, by the way, that ran on phasing out fossil fuels. On November 17th of this year, the Biden administration offered more than 80 million acres for lease to offshore oil and gas companies. 33 oil companies bought leases covering 1.7 million acres of seabed. Fortunately, groups like Earth Justice, representing the Center for Biological Diversity, Healthy Gulf, Sierra Club, and Friends of the Earth, are challenging this lease in court. And if you want to know more about it, you can Google this and re- or reach out to me. I have a lot more information that I'm happy to share. But this sale is not only counter to the administration's pledge to reduce carbon emissions, it is illegal and based on previously debunked environmental analysis. President Biden is committed to climate action and is going in exactly the wrong direction by holding this lease sale. They even had legal outs and they didn't take them. 
Leasing 80 million acres of public waters in the Gulf of Mexico is a betrayal of the Biden administration's promise to heal the injustices perpetrated by the oil and gas industry and move toward building sustainable economies. The Biden administration must reverse this course, follow through with its climate commitment, and permanently ban offshore oil for the sake of coastal communities and the economy. This is an industry that leases our public lands for less than the cost of a cup of coffee per acre, has left toxic legacies of offshore and coastal oil spills and pollution from abandoned and orphaned wells that continue to pollute the water, lands, and air for years after they've been tapped out. They willingly put their workers in harm's way and leave the taxpayers on a hook to clean up the messes and live with the pollution from both extraction and burning. In fact, the industry already has an estimated 26 million acres leased onshore, as well as more than 12 million acres leased offshore. 53% of that onshore acreage and 77% of the offshore acreage is unused and unproducing, meaning the industry is just sitting on it. They do not need any more leases. They can bring the gas prices down if they so choose. Onshore and offshore, the oil and gas industry is sitting on approximately 7,700 unused approved permits to drill. And these numbers also, just for context, are coming straight from the Interior Department. All of that, and there's another sale coming up in Alaska's irreplaceable Cook Inlet. This is something that we can still make a lot of noise about, and we have an opportunity to stop. There's a public comment period that ends on December 13th around the proposed lease sale, and there are a lot of great Alaska-based and Alaska-centered groups doing advocacy around this. Um, one in particular that you can look up for guidance is the Cook Inlet Keeper. So I'm going to wrap up this section by saying that there is something else that we can do to help. And that is reaching out to your senators to encourage them to pass the Build Back Better Act because there's some great stuff in there relating to regulating the oil and gas industry and oil and gas reform, including permanent protections to both the Atlantic and Pacific coasts and the Eastern Gulf from offshore oil and gas development. So the next poem that I'm going to share, I wrote on September 23rd about a moment that I had while walking in a foggy field on a really beautiful balmy Maine morning and it was really early in the morning so the sun was coming up over the horizon but the fog was so thick that the sun looked like this fuzzy orb it almost looked like the moon or like I was in outer space it was just this like unreal moment um, that I feel really fortunate to have been out in that field for. And um, while I was sitting there enjoying the sights, I was also joined by this little chickadee singing me a song. So I um, came back in, had my coffee, and I wrote this poem. Sun, bathing in the bracing mist, impersonating the full moon, setting the scene of the ocean come to me. Me, bathing in the early light, 
droplets of salt water, an aroma so sweet, fertile earth cradling my feet, chickadee bathing in the dew, fly, tell the world of what you see, morning lagoons and celestial mimicry. All right, are you guys ready for some positive news? <laughs> All right, so on October 7th, the Biden administration restored protections to Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments and the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument. And some of you may be wondering where the protections went if they had to be restored. And that is a great question. In December 2017, Donald Trump signed two proclamations attempting to remove federal protections from roughly 2, mil 2 million acres of land in Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Utah. And in June of 2020, Trump signed a separate, separate proclamation opening all 5,000 square miles of the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument to industrial commercial fishing which is a practice that goes just totally against the purpose of what the monument is for. Um, the monument is there for scientific research and protecting diversity of marine wildlife, including corals, fish, sea turtles, seabirds, sharks, and whales. The Northeast Canyons and Seamounts is the first and only national monument in the Atlantic Ocean. Its boundaries were narrowly tailored to protect three underwater canyons each of which are deeper than the Grand Canyon, and the only four underwater mountains, which are known as seamounts, found along the Atlantic coast. These seamounts rise higher above the seafloor than all of the mountains east of the Rockies. And Trump removing these protections made him the first president in U.S. history to ever try to use the Antiquities Act to reduce protections for places, and it was also the largest reduction of public lands in U.S. history. It's awful. It was also illegal, and many groups, including the group that I helped run, the Healthy Ocean Coalition, spent many years fighting to get those protections back, so that was really great to see. With that said, though, we still have a lot more to push for. We can protect more places, and we should protect more places, because the planet needs areas where it can rest. We need to allow for it to take a breather and rejuvenate and reproduce and do what it does best, free from the confines of human interaction and our impacts that we have on the natural world. We just need to leave it alone in some places. So this next poem that I wrote, I wrote on June 29th while sitting on a riverbank, dipping my toes in the water. All the things in a river are devoted to being free from the confines of the well, on the move in a fair weather universe, prone to drought, prone to swell. All right, so the last thing that I have for you is more of an update of things to come for the remainder of the year. So I'm going to be talking about Congress. They have so much to do and not much time to do it. Honestly, I could, I could probably just leave it there. But uh, because I pulled this together, I'll go ahead and share it. So first up is the debt ceiling. Uh, and according to a November 16th letter from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, 
uh, directed to congressional leaders, the government could reach the debt ceiling by December 15th, at which point she wrote, quote, there are scenarios in which the Treasury would be left with insufficient remaining resources to continue to finance the operations of the U.S. government beyond this date, end quote. I also don't know why I'm having such a tough time saying the word treasury. And this is for con just for context. In October, Congress voted to increase the debt limit by $480 billion, which gave the treasury enough funds for the government to pay its debts for a little while. Now, with the December 15th deadline quickly approaching, it is unclear whether Congress will be able to reach an agreement. So we are sort of waiting and seeing what they do with this. However, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt, although it has come close, and economists say that to do so would have catastrophic consequences, including potentially reversing any progress or recovery made from the pandemic, slashing millions of jobs, increasing borrowing costs for Americans, and throwing the global economy into turmoil. Doesn't that sound fun? Despite that, Republicans hope to force Democrats to raise the debt ceiling without their cooperation by attaching it to the reconciliation package, which we all are calling the Build Back Better Act. According to The Hill, it's possible that Senator Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will reach a deal to raise or suspend the debt ceiling despite opposition from members of the Republican Party. Again, this is just not a sure thing, um, so keep your eyes out on the news for this. Um, it will probably be all unfolding before our very eyes as this episode airs. I'm recording this on December 8th. It's going to be released on December 10th, so something has to happen soon. The next thing is uh, the Build Back Better Act, which I have mentioned a couple times now. The House passed the Build Back Better Act on November 19th, sending it to the Senate Senate Democrats say that they are hoping to pass this by the holiday recess, but given everything else that they have to do before then, we will wait and see if that actually happens. We are also hearing that it will likely face a vote-a-rama, um, which sounds a lot more fun than it actually is, and if this happens, it's possible that amendments can be made to this, um, and if that is the case... Then, and the Senate changes the bill, the House will have to vote on it again. So, um, this is another area where we can take action as advocates. We can be contacting our Senate offices and asking them to support the bill and keep the pressure on them. Um, I do a lot of this through my work with the Healthy Ocean Coalition. So, if you're interested in doing this but are maybe not sure what to say or want specific numbers or to learn more about what is in Build Back Better, you can reach out to me separately um, and I'm happy to, to help you. And, um, you know, many of you are probably aware that President Biden signed the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill into law on Monday, November 15th. This is a major legislative achievement for the Biden administration and the culmination of many months of negotiation with Congress. However, while the infrastructure bill does include positive provisions for ocean climate action, at its core, the infrastructure bill is not a climate bill. It will not reduce greenhouse gas emissions by the amounts needed to meet our commitments and avert the climate crisis. 
and nor does it include the necessary investments for our ocean and coasts to adapt to a changing climate. Reducing emissions is the most important thing that we can do for the ocean, the planet, and our future. Fortunately, the Build Back Better Act would provide meaningful investments in climate change, our ocean, and coasts, which is why we really should be pushing to pass this thing. The Infrastructure and Jobs Investment Act includes some important ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes priorities. The bill provides at least $1.2 billion for ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes habitat restoration and resiliency funding at NOAA. It also provides hundreds of millions of dollars for more coastal and Great Lakes habitat restoration uh, projects under various provisions, including, but not limited to, the Environmental Management and Restoration Programs at EPA and the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Pacific Coastal Salmon Recovery Fund. The bill also includes $2.5 billion for the Port Infrastructure Development Program that includes port electrification, Uh, projects and $80 million per year for five years for reducing truck emissions. In short, the funding in the Infrastructure and Jobs Investment Act provides a really important opportunity um, and an important down payment on ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes habitat restoration resiliency funding, um, as well as investments in ports and other infrastructure priorities. But Much more is needed. In addition, we need significant clean energy and climate investments to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change, warming the ocean, and increasing ocean acidification. So before we wrap up, I have one more poem prepared for you. I wrote this on October 30th after seeing a blue heron that is... um, a familiar face around my home, saw it in a field by my house, and I noticed that it was stalking something. It was in full hunter mode, and I wanted to see what was going to happen, what it had an appetite for. So it turned out to be a field mouse, which was pretty wild because I had never seen a heron eat a field mouse. I didn't realize that they did that. Um, later on, my I was telling my dad about this and he said that he saw it eat um, like a small like vole or like gopher or some sort of like thing that seemed way too, oh, you know what it was? It was a chipmunk. Gopher would have been like way, that would have been nuts. Oh my God. Yeah. So my dad saw it eat a chipmunk. This thing is uh, pretty cool and... Anyway, so it was just a really cool experience. I um, have was just an I'm I'm at a loss for words. It was just uh, very bizarre, but in this like beautiful, we're all a part of nature kind of way, and it, it started stirring up some imagery in my mind about like the cycle of life, and um, it led to this poem. You'll also see that the mouse character in this poem is substituted for a fish because um, it seemed kind of to fit more, but I guess you could insert a a fish here. Um, I just didn't know if anybody else knew that they ate mice. Anyway, I'm going to stop rambling now and just read you the poem. This is the story of the fish and the crane. Oh, look, see, I, I inserted, I even inserted a crane instead of a heron. 
this is like a big artistic freedom. <laughs> I shouldn't have even told you that story. Anyway, you can just take the story as like a separate interesting moment. And then this poem is what it is. This is the story of the fish and the crane of this cold and frosty morning during the fading days. No one heard the last gasps triggered by the hungry assassin. This is the story of nature's song, dead flowers in the rain, golden light, light of love, lying in the sun, death by strip mine, my dear one, do not bury me, eat my ashes, host a feast, a feast for man, a feast for beast, as with all echoes, I too will fade. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you all more than you will ever know. Let me know if you liked the poems. If so, I will add more throughout the year. I wish you a happy, healthy holiday season, and I encourage you to check in with each other, be kind to one another, because you never know what somebody else is going through. And the holidays can be a particularly low time for some, so be sure you're looking out for each other. And if you liked this show and want to hear others like it, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Um, subscribes, rates, and reviews are, of course, always welcome. And if you are a lover of social media, you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Coastal News 365. And on Facebook, we are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. If you would like to connect with me individually, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Jenna Valente. And on Twitter, I'm at Yana Bena. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastline. <music>